I was never present in the moment. And I was having this conversation with a friend of mine a couple of days ago, and I realized that that was the thing that's always missing. And I think that that's the thing that's missing in most of us. We're not being in the moment. We're living for tomorrow. We're living for two months from now, a year from now. And um, I've been willfully conscious of being present and being in the moment because again that's the nature of my business that's the nature of my job that's what I do for other people but I don't apply it to myself and that's pretty much the nature of the course for most of us who work in this profession we don't take care of ourselves and before we know it we spiral out of control at any given time but when we react or when we reach out to the people that we take care of and nurture they don't know what to do they're like what the hell is wrong with you like i don't know what to do with this in 2017 i had it all but it was a world built on a secret that i didn't want to deal with and could no longer contain and that's when it all came crashing down you can't stay in the closet when the floor gives way. This is Falling Out. Welcome to this episode of Falling Out. I am your host, Brian Kennedy. Joining me across the table is my co-host, Coleman Charles. Coleman, say hello. Guten Tag. Today's episode is a little bit of an intense episode. We're going to dive into some aspects of trauma. Trauma is a buzzword we often see in the therapeutic community, but it's important. And when we start talking about our stories and our falling out, we do address trauma from time to time. I think, you know, three out of the four mental breaks that I had were due to severe trauma and not processing it properly. We've talked a little bit about my story from time to time, and I've not gotten into a lot of detail, but after my falling out, I did go through a depression and recognized that I was dealing with some PTSD. Every night I would have a nightmare about my situation and and that ha lasted for about a year. I didn't recognize it as trauma. I just recognized that something bad happened to me and it was really hard for me to work within my own headspace and figure that out until I finally recognized I needed help, I needed a therapist, and I wanted to come in to talk about a hundred different things. And luckily I met with a therapist who was really good at seeing what I was experiencing as trauma. And we began to, after like the second or third session, dive into that trauma. And it was so impactful for me. And, and we're going to talk about some of that today with our guest, Will Turner, who's going to unpack some of his trauma and experiences that he's gone through. Will is the founder of Living Well with Will Health and Wellness. He is the vice president and executive administrator of community outreach and development at Bob's House of Hope and Ranch Hand Rescue. His purpose, priority, and occupation is to promote awareness, educate, empower, and support those whose lives are impacted by social marginalization, emotional, social, and sexual trauma. Will's end goal is to nurture healthy and happy people in relationships and to erase social stigmas by holding each and every individual accountable to taking care of themselves and being mindful of the manner in which they treat others. Before we kind of, you know, bring out all of this trauma talk. Um, I just want to make sure that, you know, everyone's aware of some really good um, hotlines and kind of references and points of contact if you are going through a traumatic experience. The Trans Lifeline, this is a hotline run by trans people for trans people. Their number is 877-565-8860. The Trevor Project has several different points of reference. They've got a call line 866 488 
6786-7386. You can also text START, S-T-A-R-T, to 6786-78 or chat online 24-7. So let's bring him out. Here we are. Welcome to our show, Will Turner. Will, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited and uh, looking forward to the podcast today. So tell me a little bit about just your background, your experience. Who are you? What's your story? Let's just dive right in. I don't have a clue. I'm still trying to figure that out, actually. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> uh, my story, um, you you know, we've talked a lot about what my story is. I come from a long line of caregivers. I was raised by my sisters when I was younger. My parents died when I was 12. My father I never knew. And my older sisters pretty much raised me, right? They took care of me and I am here, right? As a result, I'm a product of their care and their love, their sacrifices and their giving. So yeah, in, in essence. Yeah. You want me to continue? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what, more, yeah. more what about, about you. Like professionally? Uh, professionally, I've always worked as a youth coordinator since I was 12. Um, my, the nature of my occupation is giving and service to others. Uh, currently, I'm a teacher. I'm growing a brand in physical health and wellness. I'm a physical health and wellness consultant at Living Well with Will, hence the brand, and um, <laughs> doing lots of other philanthropic things with a number of organizations, which is how we met, actually. We won't name the name of Sums, but Legacy is one of them, which was one of the benefactors of one of the organizations which contributes to Legacy. So that's one of the things that I've been doing, and now I'm going on board to be a sponsor and probably working there to some capacity at Rantan Rescue. Um, and it's an organization that provides support services for animals who've been abused and boys who've been sexually abused and sex trafficked, right? So yeah, so I do a lot. I do a lot of things in the community. Very interesting. And I know we'll get into some of those things as we talk about some of those things today. I want to go back because I think really a focus of what we want to look at is is some of that trauma uh i know kind of in your story is a little brief but you kind of tapped on a few things that made me go oh <laughs> there's some stuff there and i want to want to dig into some of that too let's just start with you know kind of that idea of your you mentioned your parents dying and also not knowing your father Tell us a little bit about that impact and, and how it shaped you. Wow, that's going to be a diff, difficult one, but I'll try. Um, me actually not knowing my father essentially shaped the man that I am. Um, I'm a role model, role model as a consequence or as a result of me not knowing my father. I think for me, not having a father but being raised by strong black women is a contradiction in essence because for me, I don't know what it's like to be nurtured or to be mentored by men. And I think that also kind of translates itself into my relationships with my male friends and my gay male friends in particular as we talk about trauma. So that was one of the things that impacted me in such a way and I think that it still does to this day. I feel like it's kind of that gay you know trope is that it's you have 
you know, gay men usually have a lot of strong women role models that do shape. You know, there's the gay kid in high school that's always friends with the English teacher or the that, choir yeah. director. That is know? all uh, gay uh, kids uh, in high right? school. That, what are you and, that's, about? and that's my story, actually. If you want to talk about this, Mrs. Adams, she was the most amazing person. So I remember this very vividly. I was in middle school and I was sitting there and I was, we were by ourselves. The kids had all gone and I just stayed for some reason. And she was the music teacher, and I'm not musically inclined to any degree. And um, she was just like, "So, why are you still here?" I didn't want to go home. Right? I was at that time. I was ra- I was being raised by my second oldest sister, who she was single. She was never married and working, and always gone most of the time. And I would always end up staying in her class. She's like, "I'm going to teach you how to play the piano," and I'm like, "Lady." <laughs> I am not going to learn how to play the piano. And every day after school, I stayed with her, and she taught me how to play the piano. And I can play Jingle Bell really, really well these days. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of mentors. So that was one of the impacts of my life, and that's where initially that nurturing, giving, and compassion came into play. And she reminded me of my sisters, but she took on that mother role as well in nurturing me and taking care of me. So I am very, very grateful for that. Let me, let me talk about that overall impact, because I know when I'm working with clients, I know I even when I was a teacher, I had some students, and I had a student in particular back when I taught in Austin who came in the room devastated because he found out that the father that he never met had passed. And it was that sudden moment of, I'll never know my dad. I'll never know, in a sense, where I come from. And I think there's so, it's so important for us to, to know where we come from to some degree. With that in light of the LGBT community and some of the work that you've been doing, you know, and even some of the, the targets that, that kids are becoming today, like what is the importance of that family of origin and what is the importance of knowing where you came from in, in that regard with you never meeting your dad and then losing your parents so young? For me, it's not necessarily family by blood, but family by choice. I have the most amazing friends and um, I can't be more grateful. Um, Me not knowing my dad, of course, shaped that. And it also kind of guided my path and me building relationships with people in a meaningful way. Um, And just trying to be a positive person and not allowing that childhood trauma, if you will, be a limitation to me in how I interact with the people that come into my life. Yeah. How do you process that trauma? And I'm not going to go into all the different trauma things that we do in therapy, but like for you personally, how did you come to terms to that? Because I see you such a positive force in our community that a lot of times I see all the, the stuff on the outside and the great things you're doing that I would never know that there was this trauma behind. It hasn't limited you, but how did you get to a point where it wasn't going to limit you, or how did you process that? Like, honestly, there's a shitstorm inside of me that's waiting to erupt at any point, Uh, but what keeps me grounded, of course, is my sisters and my friends. My sister here, she's amazing. I'm that 12-year-old boy that I was some years ago, right? And I'm older than she is, and they take really, really good care of me. So, and my friends take good care of me. And just surrounding myself with positive people, um, trying to navigate my way through life and figuring out how I got from there to here, because I was with my therapist, and this was one of the things to be true, 
is she asked me, so what brings you here? And at that point, I was like at my lowest of my low. And I was just like, I don't know. I don't know how I got from there to here. And I just burst into tears. And that was the first time that anyone ever tapped into that trauma. And I didn't know where it came from. I was suppressing it. And that was, it just took that one question for her to ask me. And then I realized I don't have a clue. I think that for a lot of people, kind of the first time they go into therapy is the first time that they, you know, are asked that question, like, you know, what's going on and and how did you get here? Because, you know, so much of the time we're kind of just living through life and dealing with things as they come to us. And we don't take that step back to to reflect and to be like, okay, how is this stuff affecting me? Am I processing it? And kind of until we get into therapy, I feel like, you know, as a general rule of thumb, people aren't taught to kind of, you know, deal with their emotions and deal with deal with their feelings. Yeah, and for me growing up as a gay black boy in Baptist church in Pentecostal, that was one of those things that you just didn't talk about. You, you prayed about it, right? right. <laughs> and it's just like, you prayed away, Jesus is going to be all right. And I was always thinking, well, Jesus is not here right now. Like, I'm having a situation, like, who's going to help me? But um, for me, to answer your question, how we process things, we, we have a choice. We have a choice in how we do that. And for me, I always chose to divert and use my experiences and my energy and my time for good. So we were never, I was never present in the moment. And I was having this conversation with a friend of mine a couple of days ago, and I realized that that was the thing that's always missing. And I think that that's the thing that's missing in most of us. We're not being in the moment. We're living for tomorrow. We're living for two months from now, a year from now. And um, I've been willfully conscious of being present and being in the moment because, again, that's the nature of my business. That's the nature of my job. That's what I do for other people but I don't apply it to myself. And that's pretty much the nature of the course for most of us who work in this profession. We don't take care of ourselves, and before we know it, we spiral out of control at any given time. But when we react or when we reach out to the people that we take care of and nurture, they don't know what to do. They're like, what? the hell is wrong with you? Like, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, your right? role is the person that takes care of me, not the other way right. around. Right, and this is that, not that's normal. That that's not does. normal, and that's an unhealthy relationship, and it creates problems for us as nurturers, and it's our Achilles heel. And I always feel guilty by taking care of myself because that energy can be invested because me helping other people is part of my therapy. Me being a service to the community is part of my therapy. Me being helpful to my client is part of my therapy. However, when those elements are not there, when I'm at home alone by myself, it's just like I'm in my own space, in my own thoughts, and it's a shitstorm that's inside my head. I can't be idle for a second. And this is why reflecting on why I do what I do, because it's kept me from having to process or deal directly with that trauma, right? When you're a helper, you're in the helping industry, you're right. We get a lot of energy from that. We get a lot of strength from that. But it's it's kind of that idea of we're emptying the tank and no one's filling us back right. up. <laughs> you have to fill your cup before you can fill someone yeah. else's cup. And, and so, but when you talked about being present, and that's really that concept of mindfulness. If, if you're familiar with therapy for the, our listeners out there, mindfulness is that idea of being in the present. 
I like to kind of describe when we, we look at depression, depression is usually us looking backwards. It's something that's happened in the past. Anxiety is, as I've said before, overestimation of risk and then underestimating our ability to handle it. But it's always about something ahead, something in the future that's coming. And so coming back to a place where you can be mindful, where you can be in the present. You know, I, I have a friend who says, don't let tomorrow's worry steal today's joys. And, and I'm like, if there's nothing I can do about it, then why am I letting that take hold? I, for example, there was one night I woke up in the middle of the night, it was a couple months ago, and I thought, oh my God, what if I owe $10,000 in taxes? And, and, and it was two in the morning. And then I you just owe $10,000 in taxes. Right, And but I remember going, number one, is it true? And the second thing is, is thinking about this right now going to help me or hurt? Mm. And the answer is, well, this is going to stress me out. I'm not going to get any sleep. Plus, it was like January. I'm like, I've got four months to figure it out. I can't call my accountant at 2 a.m. in January or they won't be my accountant anymore. So this line of thinking is not going to be productive. So again, thinking in the present, right now in this moment, I'm in my bed, I wanna go to sleep, that's all there is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's hard for us to problem solve the conflicts that we've not been taught to problem solve when we haven't been doing that. And to speak to what you were talking about, we manifest the things that we think inside our head. And most of those narratives that we tell ourselves are not true, they're false. Right. But we feed into those and those kind of matriculate over into our spirit, our way of thinking, then our relationships, our jobs. And before you know it, we've pretty much sabotaged the process of which we're trying to achieve or find that joy or that happiness because again we're not able to be in that moment and that's why that happens because yeah. we want to be in control of everything and when it comes when it comes to a lot of these traumas we rely on negative cognitions the idea of i'm not good enough or no one's going to love me and what what our goal is to try to get to that positive cognition which is the opposite but there's a barrier and so in therapy, a lot of times I work with clients, let's identify the, the barrier. What is keeping you from believing I am enough? And then we work to remove that. Let's kind of go from there and think back again, a little bit kind of in your story. We haven't quite tapped into this yet, but obviously you came out at some point as gay. Tell us about that process, <laughs> or at least just like when oh did that happen my for you? Oh my God, we're going to talk about this. Okay, so first off, I want to be clear and transparent because you know I am. Sure. I can give two fucks what people think about me, essentially, but me, I think me growing up without parents, I didn't have to justify myself to people, uh, ideally, which in essence, looking back on it, kind of saved me because I didn't go down that rabbit hole of gay fuckery, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and also growing up in the church and being Pentecostal and Baptist and taught you're gonna burn in hell and all of these traumatic, terrible things. Speaking of traumas, that's also my story. But, oh God, I was so in love with my boss. I can say his name. Anyway, Rich, we'll just say Rich, we'll call how, him Richie. How old were you at this time? I think I was in my 20s, okay. about 20. I was working at Equinox um, in New York at the Barbazan building on the Upper East Side. Probably telling too much of this story, <laughs> but anyway, I'm transparent. And at this time, so Rich came on as the PT manager and he was my mentor. And he's this little Latino, cute little flamboyant person, which ironically enough, not necessarily my type, but we had been, 
I don't know how to say it. I guess we had been indirectly flirting with each other over the course of the time that we had worked together in one fatal Christmas party. And I remember this very specifically. And during that time, we had access to all of these crazy underground exclusive clubs. And I was with him. I was with him, my friend Kate, my friend Todd, and then three other people and some of our coworkers. So we were all there. So we're dancing and I leave and then Rich, he would always appear and me and my friend Kate, and I was like, what the hell is happening? Like, what's going on? So we went to the bar, he bought me drinks and then I left and I went and I sat down by my friend Kate. And then I got up and I went to go to the men's room. And at that time at Duvet, they have these silhouetted doors where you could see the person, but not really, but you could literally see them going. And there was a little small space underneath, so he slid underneath. And I'm just like, what are you doing? And he pushes me, and then we start making out. So then that happens. So I run out. I'm in a panic because, like, nobody at this time knows that I'm essentially gay, but clearly I'm gay as fuck. You're in New but York. Whatever. I'm in New York. Know. We go to Soho. We're in the village all the time. But anyway, so I leave, and I am with my friend Kate. And we're hanging out, and I don't feel well. So we're, like, dancing, and then he comes, he grabs me, and I see myself. My feet leave the floor. He pushes me. We go flying onto the bed. He lands on top of me, and we're making out in the front of everyone, like all of my friends. My boss was there. Oh it was insane. <laughs> so that's so. long story short, that's how I came out, right? <laughs> That's a story. Yeah, that's a story. Uh, but uh, talking about trauma, so the next day, so now I'm realizing, fuck. That's not even the end of the story. I have to tell you the rest. So now we're going to go here because I've been thinking about this all this time because I saw in his Facebook he's actually marrying someone. And now it's, this is like 20-some, 30 years ago. Now I'm dating myself. But uh, so then he ended up, taking me home and he ended up staying with me and the next day I woke up next to him. I'm thinking I have to fucking go to work today. Do you go to work? Do you not go to work? And I'm just like, you know what? Just go. So I go to work. I'm terrified because now everybody knows that I'm out. They know that I'm gay and I'm just like, what are they going to think? So my straight friend comes, I'm in the locker, uh, Leo, he's like this big macho masculine alpha dude. He goes, Will, he's like, we always knew that you were gay. He's <laughs> just like, man, he's like, I'm your bro, dude. He's just like, no matter what, I'm gonna be your friend. And that within itself made me feel comfortable with being around them. So the boss comes, he goes, is Rich here? <laughs> and I'm just like, nope, not yet. He's like, when he gets here, I want you both in my office. And I'm thinking, fuck, we're going to get fired. So Rich comes, and I was like, Rob wants to see us. So we go into the office, and he goes, you good? You good? And I go, yeah, yeah, we're fine. It's like, we will never speak of this again. Get your ass to work. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's how I came out. How did family react to that? You know, obviously, because that's your support system. <laughs> right. They, you know, they he, probably didn't hear the whole story, well, no, but, you but, know, all, you know, 
Long when, we, when we look at things like this, it's like we you've already had this kind of trauma growing up sure. with loss. So here's my sisters and family and friends who are my support system that I'm going to assume you've not told these things to. And now I've been outed. And what happens next? So what had happened was the following month or so, me and Rich were in this situation, whatever it was. He was dating somebody and I was kind of dating him and we were trying to figure out all of that shit. So my sisters come to visit me. So at this time, my niece, the only person that I told, I told my niece what happened. And the, the truth comes from the mouths of babes. And she says, uncle, she says, like, whatever you tell them, they're going to love you. They don't know this person that you are right now. So we're on the train, and my sister, the youngest one, and then the second oldest one, and I'm sitting between them. So me and my niece were talking about Rich. And one of them goes, Rich? Who's Rich? And my niece goes, Auntie, Rich is his boyfriend. And she just went white. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is not going to go good at all. So we get home. So we went out. We were eating dinner. But the, the energy changed. So I'm in the kitchen, and I'm with the youngest sister. She's the one who's slightly more liberal than the other one. So she goes, I don't. She's like, so what is this? So what is this? That's like, what are you saying? He goes, aunt, he's gay. And she goes, are you sure? Is that what you want? It's like, who told you that? Did your t therapist tell you that? And I've never, ever talked to them in any way. I said, I said, this is how God made me. You deal with that. And I walked away. <laughs> and that was the last thing that we had, we ever had this conversation. So then that night, we go to sleep, and I hear the other one sobbing and I woke up the next day they left we went to eat and they were leaving and they got into the cab and one of them she says well have have a good therapy session with your therapist never mentioned anything about it again to this day and to this day they still ask me if I have a girlfriend or when am I going to get married and I'm just like really so just complete denial Yes, complete, complete denial. So again, they accept me for who I am, but I think that they're hopeful in the sense of who I end up with because they know my story about all the gays and all the gay fuckery that has ensued and I live in the gayborhood and they've come to visit me. So um, they, they love me 100% all day, all day long. So that's a blessing within itself because, you know, it could have turned out worse. I'm just going to address the elephant in the room. There's a sense of entitlement when it comes to people of color in contrast to non. And there's this sense of cultural history that we have as people of color that's deeply rooted in family and community and Christianity, right? Those are our foundations. That's who I am. I wouldn't be here without those parameters or limitations. Hell, I might have HIV or I could be doing crystal meth or I could be the fuck boy at Tin Room, you know, but I had those boundaries in, that kept me in check. That serves its purpose, but it's like we said, culturally for us, no, that's not, that's some bitch shit. Like that's what girls do. Girls don't, girls play with dolls. Girls like boys. Boys don't do those things, right? I'm not sure if that's true for you, but that was true for me. 
And I remember I was playing with a doll once and my brother, my oldest brother, he slapped me so hard. He was just like, boys don't play with dolls. And he took the doll and he set the doll on fire. So that thing stayed with me forever in my head because then I realized if he's like that, then what would someone who's not related to me think or how would they treat me? So then I always had that fear, right? How old were you when that happened? Oh man, I was about nine or 10 when that happened, right? Yeah, and I, I feel like there's probably a lot of people out there listening that you know, have a similar, you know, experience, hopefully not as physically violent, but, you know, something that jarred them and that kind of moment of like, oh, this is wrong. This is something I'm not supposed to do. Well, and in light of a lot of the things that are going on politically, like with the don't say gay bill, the, the big argument is that we don't teach kids about sexuality, but we do teach kids about sexuality. That's, I know it wasn't coming from a authority figure per se, but that was teaching you about sexuality. I remember when I was, I don't know how old I was, uh, I want to say even pre-kindergarten, for whatever reason when I walked, I I watched a lot of Dallas and Dynasty and stuff in the 80s, but I walked, and you know, even maybe Daisy Duke from the Dukes of Hazard. but I walked and I swished my hips. And I remember- Like Daisy? Probably, that's what I'm saying, maybe it came from there. But I remember specifically my mom and dad telling me that's not what boys do. It might have even been me emulating my mom, but there was definitely a, a time or a point where they said, boys don't walk that way. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like this idea of, of these gender norms, these gender identities, these gender roles that we suddenly learn that. Mm -hmm. You don't wear mm -hmm. this color, you don't dress this way, you don't play with these particular toys, or and have you don't walk this jobs right. or any of those things. Because I remember I wanted to be a fashion designer of all things and a decorator. Those are jobs for women. When I started teaching in my 20s, I made a very conscious choice that in order to feel accepted even in the school that I had to take on a coaching duty <laughs> in high school. Because I, I, I couldn't just be a Track, teacher basketball coach yeah some somehow just being a male teacher was going to suddenly expose me so i i remember going i need to find something else i also did that because i wanted to be involved in in the school in different aspects but it was a lot of me feeling like that teacher role was a feminine thing and in order to to match the masculine expectation, I had to coach as well. Did you have any kind of teacher, father figures, or male mentor roles in your life? Mr. Edwards, up? Mr. Woods. And during this time, we, we went, we were in middle school, and during this time, you could paddle kids. And I wasn't a bad kid, and I remember I was doing something, and Mr. Edwards told me, it's just like, in order, it's like, if you're gonna be in this class, you're gonna be respectful, and you're gonna be mindful, and you're gonna do what, exactly what I tell you to do. He was, I remember him to this day. He took care of me. He always made sure that I ate, had lunch. He checked in with me. And um, Mr. Woods was my middle school teacher. And I remember this man. He was very smart, very nurturing. But he was a man, right? He had kids. And those were the two male role models that played a role in my life. Of all the men that I've known in my life, none of them were about shit and honestly, and they didn't take care of their kids. They beat their girlfriends and their wives. So speaking of all of the traumas and thinking about that in reflection and having those two individuals be a positive 
reflection of what men truly were lends itself to, again, who I am, right? That's a result of my childhood experience and doing the opposite of what I was, what was, what was mirrored or shown to me. Let's fast forward to some of the activism and, and, and helping roles that you've been in. Quite honestly, Brian, I've always known that my purpose was to be of service to others. I've always been that way, and that's a reflection of the women in my life. But right now, what I'm doing, um, I am the youth coordinator for my church at Cathedral of Hope, and it's the most joyous thing. I get to see these kids. I get to interact with them in such a way. Once we've able to tap into the reason why things happen for us, and not to us, it's a beautiful thing because it allows us to serve a greater purpose. So I'm doing that. And I had the beautiful opportunity now to be working with a wonderful organization called Ranch Hand Rescue uh, in Bob's House of Hope. And they provide support resources for boys who have been sex trafficked and sexually abused. And part of their therapy is that animal therapy is animal to human therapy where the boys take care of the animals, the animals take care of the boys and they kind of help them through this process. And uh, it's a residential facility in addition to, and I'm super excited to be a part of that. So that's part of my philanthropy moving forward and looking back on all the things I've been doing previous to has lended itself to this beautiful moment and opportunity to serve and to use my experience and my skills to a greater capacity to help these boys. I'm fascinated by the work that you're doing especially with the ranch. I think most people, when we hear the word sex trafficking, this idea that, that that's also female, that it's girls who are sex trafficked, boys aren't sex trafficked. So speak a little bit to that and, and what brought you to this organization. The founder, Bob, um, I met him again through charity events and we just became friends. We became social media friends over the course of a long period of time. And he kind of followed me and saw like all of the things that I've been doing. And um, he eventually asked me to be a mentor. And of course I said yes. And we had talked about some of the taboos about sex trafficking because again, it's one of those things where we think about it. Yes, it's only females. That's not true, right? There, Texas is one of the top states that is sex trafficking boys and nobody really knows, no one speaks of it, but it's happening, it's happening right now, right? So Bob's House of Hope launched a campaign, a billboard campaign of bringing awareness to this fact of sex trafficking of boys, but it's a taboo, it's a stereotype, and one that needs to be addressed because there's lots of boys out here who are being sex trafficked, sexually abused. There's no supports for them essentially, because again, it's one of those things, it's just like, you know, that's just, those things don't happen to boys, but they do, they absolutely do.
I was going over the the kind of statistics. So only 20% of homeless youth are LGBTQ in the United States, and 58.7% of them are exploited through sexual prostitution, mm -hmm. which is a at a much higher rate than the 33.4% of heterosexual homeless youth that are at risk. So nearly twice the amount that you know normal sex trafficking. Um, that's an epidemic. Occurs. Yeah, it's a huge, huge epidemic, and it's important that we bring awareness to it because these boys need us and they need our support. And um, if we don't, who will? And for me, as a male, through my experience, that's the reason why I'm here. That's why all of the things that happened for me is to prepare me for this opportunity to share my story, to share my voice, to be of support. Because it happened to me. Right? I was sexually abused when I was a child as well. And I internalized that in the sense of me not being a victim, I'm a survivor, right? Because if I allow myself to be a victim, then I wouldn't be able to do all of the things that I'm doing, right? Because sometimes that become a limitation to us and it's a taboo. Again, who do you tell? Right. Who's gonna believe you? As someone right? that's kind of gone through, you know, an experience changing that mindset of going from a victim to a survivor, I think is very powerful because it, it puts you back in control of your own narrative. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we get to choose what that narrative turns out to be. And for me going back, when I talk about trauma, I don't use that word in essence, because again, it's to assume there's something wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. That's just something that happened to me. But I don't have to let it be a limitation. I'm not here to make you comfortable. My story has been uncomfortable all of my life, so if you don't respect or value me for who I am as a person, then yes, you should be uncomfortable. I chose to look at the positive side because I don't have to wear that scarlet letter. I'm only responsible for the choices I make and what I do with my platform, right? And my platform is to help people take better care of themselves so then that way they can take care of others, their friends, their loved ones. But I don't talk about it. I show them. It's very visual. It's visual on my platform. It's visual on the work that I do in the community. I lead by example because we can talk all day. But if we're not doing anything, if we're not proactive, then guess what? No change is made, right? So that's the result of my brand and why I chose it and why I decided to go on this journey because I want to help people in the process of processing their trauma and dealing with that and making them comfortable because guess what? We don't heal otherwise. We have to be uncomfortable. We have to acknowledge that uncomfortability in order for us to grow and heal. But we can't allow other people decide that for us. We have to choose it for ourselves. Well, before you go, we're gonna jump into a little game that we play. Uh, this is just a little bit we like to do with our, our guests to just get to know you a little better. I'm going to go ahead and let Coleman take the, the lead on this. And here we go. It's lightning round, so just kind of, you know, top top of your head. Um, what is your favorite workout song? Oh, Ariana Grande. All right. What is your favorite calming technique? Drinking. <laughs> what is your favorite show to watch? Ooh, I don't watch TV that much, but I was watching, oh my God, what was it? 
The Viking Show. Okay. I, yeah. Viking anyway, Show. Viking All right. Show. I don't I remember the name of it. Uh, what is your favorite comfort food? Donut. Donuts. All right. And what is your favorite life coach phrase that you tell everyone? Treat others how you wish to be treated. Golden rule. Before we go, just tell everyone where they can find you, what you're doing, whether that's on social media or websites or just out and about in the community. Where can we find what, the work that you're doing? You can find me on livingwellwithwill.com, um, Instagram at willturner underscore fitwithwill. YouTube, of course, I have my platform, but mostly livingwellwithwill.com. Everything that you need to find is there, um, resources for you to help take care of yourself, to you know, eat better, feel better, look better, um, and Ranch Sign and Rescue, up. of course. <laughs> Right? All of these things are important. So, yeah. It's with one L. Why? Because I can. <laughs> Perfect. So, if you look that up, Living Well with Will, one it's L. W I L. So, it's L I V I N G W I T H W I L dot com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. I know we dove into a lot of places, but I really appreciate you willing to tell some of your story, to share those experiences. Sure. Thank you so much for being oh with us. Oh my God, I'm going to be traumatized from yeah. this when I go home. <laughs> I don't know what to do, but thank you for having me. I appreciate you guys, and um, I look forward to hearing the podcast. Wow, I really in enjoyed that episode, but I think it brings up a lot of tough topics that we haven't addressed in the community and, and some things that might even be a little controversial for our listeners. Yeah, I think this is definitely, you know, at least for me personally, the, the heaviest episode we've done and, you know, one that's brought up a lot of stuff. Like, I mean, kind of like we mentioned, trauma is a hard thing to talk about. And who wants to be out with your friends, hanging out and be like, let's talk about trauma. Like that usually only happens after you've had way too much to drink. <laughs> and in, in therapy, I know right now there is a lot of buzzwords around trauma. I think it's because we're learning more about trauma and we're, we're starting to unpack. I will say not everything's trauma. Um, I think a lot of things get lumped into trauma and it doesn't always fall under that category. But again, I think it's important also to realize that the trauma that you've experienced, it's about how it's playing out right now. Yeah. And, and that's so important in a therapeutic understanding of, of trauma is what, what is it manifesting in your life now? What is it doing? How is it keeping you from experiencing the life and the joy that you're wanting to do? Like, is it holding you back? So we have to process some of those things and get to them to understand how to move forward. Yeah, I think one, we'll have this really good you know, line about being present. And I think that's probably about one out of every four of my therapy sessions is about being present. It's about you know not being you know depressed about the past or anxious about the future and just being present in the moment you know, working on, yeah, you know, your, your past and your future can inform how you are today, but let them inform and not influence. Yeah. And it's a tough episode. I mean, I, I can honestly say sitting here, working through some of those things, hearing some of those stories made me remember some of my own past experiences. And I, I, I was processing a lot through that and thinking, wow, how, how do I feel about that? What do I think? How does that impact me? And what do I need to do differently? And um, I'm glad we can have those kind of conversations. I think it's important for our community. I think it's important, important for our own well-being for us to be able to talk about the things that are difficult and process as we go. 
you know, is there ever a good time or a right time to talk about, you know, trauma and kind of some of your past experiences with people that you are hopefully very close to? But I think, you know, trying to find those those moments to be like, hey, do you have some time to talk about this or about something that might be a little uncomfortable? And I think that's, you know, one of the issues that we have in the community is that we're not able to have these conversations while we are growing up, you know, and as young adults, you know, kind of with the whole don't say gay bill that's going on in Florida, it's like, you know, part of the whole problem that we have in the gay community with a lot of trauma is that we don't get to talk about it. We don't get to talk about what, you know, normal looks like. We just get to kind of talk about the aftermath of not talking about it. And and when we do that, I think that's when sometimes we start seeing the creation of subcultures, the creation of other because we can't talk about it. We don't know who to be. We're trying to figure out what we're supposed to dive into. And then all of a sudden we come into a community and we have people telling us this is the way to be. This is what you're supposed to do. And for a lot of us who have experienced that trauma, there is that I don't know who I am. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. So then we start following another subset of rules in try, trying to find acceptance and find our place in the world. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I hope to continue these type of conversations, even as uncomfortable as they may be. It's important for us to peel back the layers and, and look and see what's underneath. Remember, you can't stay in the closet when the floor gives way. This is fun.